it is one of the most coordinated global sports properties that I think exists on the market. And I think that allows us to deliver a product on many fronts that is incredibly consistent, well-produced, incredibly reliable for those that, that choose to invest in us on a commercial level. Rather than just being passive distributors of rights and hoping that our broadcast partners will appreciate and invest in the content in the way that we would like them to, we want to take an active role in the way that both that they're positioned and to try to incentivize those partners to really prioritize given the amount of world sport that is happening at any given time. The television reach was something like 3 billion. There were one and a half billion video views across social media in excess of 45% of the audience in Spain at the time, effectively sitting down and watching the final, which they took the, the gold medal in. Uh, so it was, it was an incredible event. Hi there, welcome to Sports Content Strategy. My name is Richard Clark. My guest this time is Andrew Ryan. He is the Managing Director of FIBA Media. Now, I don't profess to be too much of a basketball fan. I'm taking interest in the NBA, and when I lived in Denver, I watched the Nuggets quite a lot and thoroughly enjoyed it while I was out there. But one thing that's become apparent in the last three, four, five years has been the growth of FIBA, basketball outside the NBA, in places like Europe, in the Far East. And this is something I wanted to get into and understand. Like the NBA, FIBA media have been uh, very innovative in the way that they've approached content and the way they've used content to grow their brand. And that's what we get into in this particular episode. As I say, my name is Richard Clark. I'm a sports consultant in content, communications, digital media, digital strategy, and general strategy, really. Uh, I'm also a journalist and an author. I've got a book out called Last Wicket Stand on uh, county cricket, so check out Last Wicket Stand on Amazon or indeed on my website, mrrichardclark.com. On social media, you can find me at Mr. Richard Clark 2. That's E on the end of Clark. Not Mr. Richard Clark 2, just Mr. Richard Clark. <laughs> and Sports Content Strategy is out there on social media, all the usual platforms. Anyway, enough of the silly jokes from me. Let's talk FIBA Media. Let's talk the development of basketball outside of the NBA. Places like Spain, who are the world champions, the recent World Cup in China and the way they're using content to grow the sport. And we'll talk about it with this man. My name is Andrew Ryan. I'm the Managing Director for FIBA Media. Uh, FIBA Media is a long-term joint venture between FIBA, the World Basketball Federation, and DAZN, which essentially looks after the, uh, the production, distribution, and commercialization of all of FIBA's uh, premium basketball competitions across the world, both at, at global and continental level. Thanks for speaking to me, Andrew. First of all, reflections on the most recent World Cup. I know that was the end of last year and you were relatively new into the company uh, then, but um, it, it seemed to be the biggest and the best uh, FIBA event ever. Is that fair to say? It's, it's, it, it's certainly got a lot of uh, media attention. I think that's that's definitely the view uh, within within Fever and probably from the uh, the commercial and broadcast partners. It was it was an event that that finished just before I came on board uh, into the managing director role, so not something I can take any credit for whatsoever. But it was an amazing event to watch as a basketball fan in terms of just a collection of gripping games, seeing such a storied nation like the USA uh, effectively knocked out of the tournament before getting to the 
the latter stages. Um, and in terms of the, the engagement levels, uh, it, it was just immense. I mean, the, the television reach was something like 3 billion. There were one and a half billion video views across social media. Uh, I think it was in excess of 45% of the, the, the audience in Spain at the time, effectively sitting down and watching uh, the, the final, which they took the, the gold medal in. Uh, so it was, it was an incredible event. And being in a country like China, which is basketball obsessed, uh, it, is, it is a monumental sport in, in Chinese, uh, Chinese culture. Uh, and obviously across, I think, I think it was eight venues from memory, some amazing arenas and, and great crowds all around. And obviously having some, some incredible names that were participating here when you're talking about uh, Ada de Compu, you know, the NBA MVP, uh, the collection of the, the Boston Celtics who were in the USA team, the Australian team flooded with, with NBA stars, France led by Batum and Rudy Gobert. It was just it was, it was a great collection of stars that, that were on show and just an amazing event all around. And just for people who don't know, what are the span of FIBA events? Obviously, the World Cup's the, the premium event, but, but just for those who don't know, because FIBA's not as, as well known as some organisations around the world. Yeah, of course. So where FIBA differs from probably what people are more familiar with, for instance, the, the, the global and regional football setup is that uh, there's essentially a concept of one FIBA where the global organisation is essentially the umbrella and, and has the hand in, in organising and arranging uh, all of the continental events as well. So within our FIBA media portfolio of events, which is you know, what we would look at as probably the, the premium content, you've got the Men's and Women's World Cup, uh, and the, the quite extensive uh, qualifiers series that runs for the, for the men's side um, now. And on the continental level, there are the four main uh, continental events in the, in the form of Eurobasket, the America Cup, um, Afrobasket and the Asia Cup. And there are also on the men's side within our portfolio, um, the various qualifier events that run for those. So it's, it's quite an extensive amount of, of content that sits in the premium hub. And we also have the, the under-17 and under-19 World Cups in there. Over and above that, there's also a massive amount of content that comes under the, the FIBA umbrella. I mean, if you, if you ever go onto the, uh, the FIBA YouTube channel, for instance, there's something in excess of 2,000 games per, per year that you will find on that, whether it's across uh, games from the Basketball Champions League, which has been running for quite a few years now, uh, various underage events at regional level. And this is all essentially coming under the, under the global FIBA umbrella. So it's quite an extensive uh, calendar. And it's, it's pretty safe to say that, that it, is, uh, it, it is almost a year-round proposition in terms of, in terms of events uh, or qualification series that are taking place. Obviously, somewhat deviated this year through COVID-related impacts, but both from the events that we have in our portfolio and also the wider set of FIBA events. It really is a massive amount of games and events that are taking place each year. And you say it is year round and it is properly global. So there's an argument to say that this is the biggest, the widest, the most um, uh, regularly sourced uh, content hub in the world, isn't it? In, in world sport, I would think, because you are, you are global and you are year round. Who else is that? I couldn't. I couldn't put it better myself, Rich. I think we'll get you on board as a, as a sales head. For the I team. can be I your you, PR man. You, 
<laughs> you've summed it up brilliantly. No, I mean, it, it, it is true that the fact that we have the ability to essentially mar uh, you know, produce, market and commercialise all of those continental events. And we, and we have various regional offices that, that essentially are absolutely critical in the, in the delivery of those events. But in terms of the commercialisation of those, both on a media and a sponsorship level, they sit within the portfolios that are managed by FIBA and, and on the media side come part of our FIBA media joint venture. So it is uh, one of the most coordinated global sports properties that I think exists on the market. And I think that allows us to deliver a product on many fronts that is incredibly consistent, well-produced uh, and incredibly reliable for those that, that choose to invest in us on a commercial level. So how's your content team organized? Because you're, you're centrally based in Switzerland, but obviously you've got global events. So how does it work? So we have, uh, within, so it's, I'll try to explain this as simply as possible. So the, the, the joint venture uh, that exists, which is, which is known as Fever Media, has a permanent staff of around 25 people. And they're divided into two sections. Uh, on the one hand, a production and operations side, and on the other hand, a digital marketing slash OTT slash direct-to-consumer side. Uh, the, that, is, that is the permanent staff that are within that venture. We also rely and work incredibly closely with, uh, for instance, the partnership sales team at Design, who do a lot of the work on the ground in terms of both identifying commercial opportunities when it comes to selling our rights on a cycle-by-cycle -cycle basis, uh, negotiating, concluding the agreements that, that effectively underpin the revenue that, that, that allows FIBA Media to tick along. We also scale up, uh, whether it's for individual game weeks within the Basketball Champions League or something like the FIBA World Cup in China, where we're talking several hundred temporary staff that come into being, whereas broadcast operation managers or essentially large groups of people that are providing both technical, logistical and operational services. So it's, it's, got, a, it's got a not massive permanent team in terms of content creation, management, marketing, uh, but that does scale up very significantly uh, when it comes to actual game day and event tournament time. So what's your content strategy? How do you use your content? Um, do you have a one or two line crafted strategy that you can present to me or, or is it uh, is a, a little bit more um, uh, uh, on the fly as it were? <laughs> uh, I, I think it's a, probably, probably coming back to the purpose of Beaver Media. It's, it's actually largely serving others to do interesting things with the content that comes from our games and the surrounding ancillary content that you might find for that, whether in terms of previews, post-match highlights and the like. So our primary job is to create the content that's sexually used by our intermediary partners in the form of, of broadcasters. So we produce obviously the, the live world feed that comes for, comes for all of our games. Uh, and as I said, a, a numerous highlights, clips, uh, other pieces of supporting content that are effectively given to them to try to exploit as best possible the media rights that we've sold for them. We're also, to a certain extent, the content engine that helps the FIBA social media platforms, which essentially run, and digital platforms, which are run by FIBA Communications, to essentially give them the assets that they need, particularly that are inextricably linked to, to games themselves, to be able to feed those out to the various uh, various fans or community groups that they've established. So 
they have their own strategy in terms of, of what what narrative they're creating in and around events or in and around our different properties. They have their views on what it is that works best on each of the different social media platforms in terms of game content. But our business is the one of providing them the assets which enables them to essentially deliver on those strategy as, strategies as best possible. I think where it probably becomes a bit more interesting for us in terms of being slightly more active in, in terms of what it is that we're trying to produce and where it is that we're using it. Uh, we have a versioning OTT platform that is called livebasketball.tv and that uh, essentially gives you access to a large proportion of the, the content that comes within the, the FIBA media portfolio, uh, obviously subject to, to various restrictions we have in our media rights agreements, but we're constantly working on the, the programming or the content mix for that, whether or not it's, it's, it's obviously not just a live stream product, but something that we're working on a good, what's the optimal mix when it comes to condensed games or, or other content. But once again, that product is, is largely related to the actual game itself as opposed to producing a huge amount of supporting or other marketing content that sits around there. Probably the other aspect that's, that's particularly interesting is since we've set up our own digital marketing or direct-to-consumer element within Fever Media, that's uh, probably got two or three, three probably key streams of activities. Um, one is that we have a specific vertical that looks after working with influencers and players to either co-create content or to distribute content that we think is, is exciting or engaging for their fan base and essentially taking the view that there are, there are individuals who are opinion shapers across the world of basketball, across the world of entertainment, uh, that we hope can actually not only promote the FIBA events, but actually help to amplify our commercial programs as well. So we have the player and influencer program on that hand. We have a number of very, very important relationships with, with what we generally refer to as publishers. So you know, we, have, we have a content relationship with the, uh, with the NBA. So they, during the last World Cup, they made available uh, quite a lot of highlights content on the, on the NBA app, which is obviously an extremely popular and influential product in world basketball. Um, we had a relationship established with Swish Cultures, who are, who are a newer brand in the basketball publishing space around the Basketball Champions League. This is all about trying to get promotion and content of FIBA events to you know, the basketball fan community, but also in, uh, with various relationships, the more mainstream sports consumer, to be able to both alert them to the fact that, that events are going on and trying to frame it in a way which is particularly interesting for them. And the final piece of that puzzle is a dedicated broadcaster marketing team. So we actually have one person on the team who is largely dedicated to establishing uh, I guess probably online digital marketing relationships with the digital teams, with some of our key broadcast partners. So they, for instance, for the last World Cup, worked deeply with a broadcaster like uh, Magenta in Germany to produce a lot of bespoke and highly original assets, which they've used throughout digital promotion, both in advance and during the World Cup, that essentially tries to give a push along that is in both of our interests. So it incentivizes the broadcaster to actively and more aggressively promote our content or our properties um, than they might have otherwise done, but also allows us to be able to, to push narratives which are helpful for our products into the market and doing that in a way that's mutually beneficial. 
That's really interesting, that part, that last part. Um, well, a couple of parts of that answer very interesting, but particularly the broadcast marketing relationship, because I remember I, were, I worked at Arsenal and, and we had a television show that went to hundreds of countries. And the, the, just getting some shout outs, you know, watch Arsenal TV on blah, blah channel and make it, but not just, just as basic as that, but making it something that they actually wanted, not that you were prepared to give, but something that they actually wanted and closing that relationship up, you can actually fulfill their requirements in a relatively short space of time, as long as you communicated effectively. So it's interesting you've done that. And, and has that given you what you wanted? How far are you along that journey of closing that gap? Because it can be an issue, right? Sure. I think um, it, it probably very much depends on the broadcasters. Some are more engaged in that activity than others. There's a lot, and particularly it was particularly effective around uh, Europe and some parts of uh, some parts of Asia, that it, who who were really looking to invest in the the basketball rights, particularly around the World Cup, as a particular property, and it had good reasons whether or not it's a high performing team, uh, whether or not certain athletes who had had key popularity ratings in their territory that they looked and thought actually this is something that is very very well worth us investing our time and resources in. So at the end of the day. It's, it's about what, what is it that's going to get the best result with the most efficient use of resources for both sides. And so I think we learned a lot from those discussions in and around the World Cup and subsequent events as to what it is that is most effective in particular markets in promoting events and what it is that are the preferences or essentially understanding the optimal way that our broadcast partners try to market the events and trying to support them in the best way possible through that broadcast marketing function. So I think it's probably just we, rather than just being passive distributors of rights and hoping that our broadcast partners will appreciate and invest in the content in the way that we would like them to. And to be honest, it's, it's obviously seen as a premium product, particularly around those major events um, for our key broadcast partners. But, we want to take an active role in the way that both that they're positioned and to try to incentivize those partners to really prioritize given the amount of world sport that is happening at any given time. And going back and talking about the influencer program, using players as assets to mutually grow, um, how much of that is, is commercially focused and how much of that is just, just brand building? You, you know, you help us, we help you, we'll both grow our brand together and then commercialize it in a different way. And, and how much is of it, it is, is brass tax commercially focused at this stage? Yeah, so I think it's primarily brand building at the moment. Also, when, when we say brand building, I guess the, the FIBA communication strategy is is probably less about building fever as a brand and more so taking our major assets and actually really amplifying them. So let's take the, the Basketball World Cup as an example. Most of the work that we did with, with various influencer partners, both on the player and non-player level, were geared towards drumming up interest, whether on a particular national level or towards a particular demographic, as to the actual World Cup event and using that as a real centrepiece of activity. Um, it's not something that we've we've necessarily uh, to date done a great deal of partnering up with FIBA sponsors, for instance. But I think as that program develops and we work out both the best ways of of amplifying our message, working out the influencers or, or players that are 
that are possibly the best drivers of, of, of engagement and activity from, from posting, that that's the sort of thing that I think is possibly the next iteration of that process. I think there's also an interesting development and uh, it, it's, it's probably not a surprising one, but certainly something we're seeing around world sport more and more and probably uh, driven largely by activity on, on the American professional sports front, but utilising the, the reach of players to effectively bring highlights content that essentially if you're taking the view of highlights content as marketing content, why not use some of your biggest stars to essentially circulate content that is relevant to them as a player because they've played in that game, because the highlights package is focused on them and saying, actually, let me serve that to my community so I can actually enhance the interest that's coming in, both me as a player, but also the, the wider property itself. And I think that's something we'll start to see more and more of. And I think it's something that we're starting to look at. How's, how can we do that in a relatively efficient way in a way that's also helpful to our commercial partners, particularly our broadcasters, but still gives the athletes the freedom to be able to, to use the content in a way that speaks to their audience. You're dealing with content from around the world. So what's your multilingual approach? Um, you know, how many languages are you creating content in? What, what's your main focus in terms of languages? And, and how do you get that content produced? Sure. So it's a really good question, actually. Um, there's probably two angles to this. So as for our OTT basketball service, it is primarily an English language service. Uh, so we, we will invest in having our own commentators available for every game that goes into that service. Uh, those commentary, uh, that commentary audio is also made available to our broadcasters should they want to pick it up. Uh, but it's effectively a service that we, we provide that we take advantage of ourselves as well. The, the probably the more interesting part is in relation to our, our world feed and it's it's less coming at it from an angle of how many languages are we putting this into because essentially our broadcast partners will, will for the most part overlay their own commentary particularly when it comes to their, their home team games in particular so they will effectively localize that live content and any highlights content that they take out of it and use subsequently uh, one, one of the things that has been an interesting thing to not tinker with yet but work out what we could do is in and around on-screen graphics uh, on, on, the, on the world feed and obviously when you have fans who are coming from a, an experience where they're used to watching NBA games which are quite quite graphics heavy I think is a, is a fair way to say and usually done done very very well whether at the sort of national ESPN level or on, on, on a more sort of regional sports network basis and it does really enhance the viewing experience. On the other hand, we have to account for the fact that our world feed and the graphics that sit therein are consumed by people across the entire globe. Some who have excellent comprehension of English, some who have probably very little comprehension of English. And so one of the things that is a, a relatively frequent topic of discussion within our, our production, and particularly our, our, the people who are, who are heavily into the, the construction of our graphics is how to convey information on screen as effectively as possible without relying on uh, you know, whether, whether it's buzzwords for the names of particular statistics or, or, or enhancements that are on screen and not a huge reliance on English language driven explanations or text. And so that, that is something we're still 
looking at on a regular basis. It's something we're still exploring with, with, uh, with, with our partners to see how we can make it work as effectively as possible. But it is one of the real challenges of developing a product that has to be made for the entire globe rather than just one particular language market. How holistically do you think of these things? Because you've, you've talked there about the communications team is doing one part. You've, you've got a relationship with DAZN. You're, you've got a central uh, office in Switzerland, but then you've, you've got to be in different places. So how big a challenge is it to think holistically, to make sure you're all on the same page, that you've all got the same priorities pushing in the same direction? Uh, it, it really is a massive challenge, to be honest. And I think, I think it's something that I'll, I can talk about from a couple of levels. I think uh, we've, we've particularly, at least in the, the 12 months that I've been there, and I guess because I come from a background where I have a huge interest in the way that content is made available through direct consumer means or through digital products that are run by leagues or, or, or events. Uh, and so it's been one of my... Uh, real aims and objectives over the first 12 months of being in this role to establish a really solid relationship with the FIBA communications team and to try to help them achieve their objectives as much as possible because there's not much point us spending a great deal of money and resource producing content that doesn't necessarily fit with their ambitions. It doesn't focus on the players that they think are the best ones to tell stories around. So there is, there is a lot of discussion and coordination that goes on that front uh you know even down to the the player and influencer setup of trying to work with people that we think best represent what are the ideals or the optimal communication threads that the FIBA communications is looking to portray so there's one element there obviously when it comes to our internal content creation uh requirements we have some of us who are stationed in in switzerland we have um, our, our head of production who is who is stationed in France. We have a lot of production staff who sit in Madrid because they essentially operate out of one of the major design production hubs in Madrid. And so there's the challenge of both a, uh, a, a I guess, a content direction there of making sure that that not only are we are we effectively communicating strategies and approaches as effectively as possible but also the, the technological uh, challenges that I think have been amplified so much because we, we essentially don't even have the ability to be in the same office at the same time, even for those who are located in the same country. We were probably incredibly lucky that being a part of an organisation like DAZN, who had effectively invested quite a deal of money and time to be able to set up um, a lot of elements of production activity on a remote basis in advance of COVID meant that we were actually incredibly well set up to, to get through that period and to be able to continue producing, e even if it wasn't obviously the live game day content, but being able to feed the various stakeholders, whether on the FIBA social side or for our broadcast partners with a steady stream of content that effectively able, enabled them to still promote and to amplify fever competitions and, and properties during the shutdown period. Let's talk about live basketball TV, your OTT product. So first off, how do you balance the value proposition there? Because you've got broadcast partners and you've got a director consumer product, which, you know, like everybody, you're looking into that and seeing maybe that's the future. Who knows? But it's going to be a seesaw, isn't it? It's going to be a balance about what you give here to keep value over there, to keep rights fees coming in as opposed to uh, selling direct to consumer. So, so how have you, how have you sat on that seesaw? 
Yeah, it's one we've done reasonably effectively throughout most territories. Uh, and probably some people would find that somewhat surprising. On, on the other hand, I think there is the, de definitely the fact that that is a pay subscription product helps uh, enormously because at least if you're a broadcast partner and you're being told, okay, there is another proposition that will be in the market that has a decent crossover of content that is also being licensed to you. The fact that that, that product is being offered on a, on a premium subscription basis, I think gives them some level of comfort in terms of they're not just being essentially a splash of content on YouTube or Facebook or on the primary event website uh, of that content. Um, I think live basketball TV is also uh, a really helpful product in probably two main consumer groups. One is for massive super fans of basketball. So obviously a lot of our broadcast partners will take advantage of the, the games that involve their home teams, probably some other popular teams who have highly identifiable basketball athletes in them or the latter stages of tournaments, so the quarters, semifinals and finals of Eurobasket, for instance. Um, on, the, on the other hand, they obviously have, you know, particularly for linear broadcasters or even those who, who are operating on the direct consumer basis as well, they have some level of capacity of the content that they want to introduce to their, to their user base. And having something like live basketball TV, which will essentially give you the ability to access all of the content that you could possibly want to watch, that's a great product for a super fan to have. So as a, you know, if, if you, for instance, me as, as a born and bred Australian and someone who follows the Australian Boomers and Australian Opals very closely, they're not necessarily always going to get the broadcast on local Swiss TV here that, uh, that I might want them to. On the other hand, before I was working at Fever, obviously I would use live basketball TV as a, as a place to effectively be able to keep up with my followed teams and the range of other teams that I have some sort of either interest in or passion for. Um, the, the other group is probably not, not necessarily super fans, but in countries where there's largely an underserved basketball market. So the, the local broadcaster might really have a, a small number of games that they make available, which might not go that far past the home team and, and a couple of knockouts. And in those instances, and we can see this in the, in the figures that come through about where our subscription levels are, that their territories where you do tend to find quite a higher concentration of subscribers because it is either, you know, as good or if not a better option to go and actually find your basketball content um, in that particular territory. But that's probably a smaller group because obviously we, we tend with our right sales to value not just the revenue that comes in across it, but also the reach and quantity of distribution that we're getting from our partners. And obviously strategically, they're the ones who we will lean towards because we think that working with intermediary broadcasters as much as it's not so much of a fashionable thing as talking about OTT these days, but it's still an amazing method and mechanism to effectively get your content out in front of as many people as possible. Sitting on an EPG with your properties being, being displayed is a way of marketing your content that is not necessarily possible when you're sitting on an OTT product. So there, there, there are still huge advantages to working with, with uh, third-party intermediary broadcasters, and I don't think that is going to change anytime soon. I think what we will continue to do, though, with the, with the OTT service is explore how we can take it to the next, next level in terms of what we do at the moment and whether or not that's actually bringing more content in there, putting more content available in front of the paywall that isn't necessarily subject to rights restrictions. And whether or not that content's in front of the paywall or behind it, 
working out ways that we can either add some interactive enhancements on it, whether in the forms of, form of statistics, fantasy play, uh, any, anything like that. And also, can we commercialize it in an effective way, either as a complementary to, to the subscription fees or as a standalone commercial proposition? So I think there is still so much that can be done in terms of the, the digital delivery of content. And I know it, it, it frustrates me sometimes when people talk about OTT as just being something that is a rights holder delivered product, but actually a large number of our broadcast partners already have incredibly strong OTT products set up themselves that obviously are incredibly popular, incredibly well patronized. And we want to work with not just them, but ourselves in trying to say, how is it possible to best deliver a basketball broadcast in digital format and taking advantage of some of the opportunities that actually come with that form of delivery as distinct from a linear form of delivery. Yeah, and everyone talks about, well, there's linear and then there's OTT. Well, actually, OTT has the capacity to be so much more than linear in a way. Obviously, you've got the the audience and the ease of ease of consumption that, that linear will give you, but you've got personalization um, with within OTT. And obviously, we're at the start of that. But, you know, even even us in England, I've, I've got Netflix, I've got Amazon, I've got iPlayer. And the Netflix user experience is, I would rather watch Netflix user experience on my phone than BBC iPlayer on my television. It just gives me a better user experience. So I'm actually prepared to go to a smaller phone because it's, it's just better. It's just better, which is, which is a little bit counterintuitive. But my question is about personalization. Where are you along that journey and three to five years, where are you trying to get to? That, that's a big question, sure. I know, but you know. No, it, it, it's a really good one. And, and I think in, in terms of where I look long-term at sports delivery of, of content, and obviously this is, this is a major interest area for you as well, is how is it that we can make each person's experience of our content, whether or not on a live or a non-live basis, as dedicated to them as possible as serving their needs as much as possible. So, so that's, that's one aspect, and I'll get on to a second one of it, of it uh, later. I think there are so many interesting things that can be done there. And, and I'll take, take the example of, uh, of fantasy basketball, for instance, which is something that there you know, a, a decent proportion of basketball fans, uh, whether, through, whether from the NBA or through other properties that make those available, will play fantasy games that both enhance their enjoyment of, of watching the sport, give them a reason to consume it in the first place, even for games where they might not necessarily have a major passion point otherwise. And the concept of potentially down the track being able to have that person identify or, or essentially have linked to their broadcast the players that are in their fantasy team that are participating in that game, being able to overlay additional graphics effectively saying that, okay, you have Kawhi Leonard in your team, him hitting a three-pointer has essentially added this many points to your fantasy total for the night. Here's his cumulative total. Here's what your team total looks like for, for the evening of play. And doing all that in a way which is incredibly personalised for that individual consumer and giving them information which is very relevant to them is just one of the myriad of ways that, that I think both are possible and that we are look actively looking at to try to transform the, the OTT delivered content experience in and around basketball games. 
I think the second part of personalization probably comes back to where you've heard, for instance, Netflix talking about their AI engine being an amazing recommendation for engine for working out what content you like, what you don't like. I, I probably still have some skepticism that, that Netflix is amazing at telling me what my what I will genuinely love as a television series, but it does a reasonable job of surfacing content that's at least got some leakage to what I've consumed before. I think on the sports front, uh, at the moment, there is probably only, there's only so much content that is relevant at a given time, usually at least from, from content uh, or content catalogs like ours, or the NBA or football leagues and the like, that actually a user being able to have surfaced the content that they want is probably not dramatically hard at the moment. Um, I think, and we've started to see this already, um, and probably the NBA app is a great example of it, of the amount of highlights clips that are essentially packaged for a particular reason. And I've taken myself as a personal example of, I tend not to follow individual NBA teams, but will follow a lot of the Australian players who are, who are doing well in the league at the moment. I can get highlights clips that are either dedicated to those players that are dedicated to a roundup of the Australian players per night. And depending on the amount of time I've got available, that's a really, really effective way for me to be able to keep up with what I'd like to know from that competition on a, on a day-to-day basis. And the ability of them to be able to serve that content or to surface it as effectively as possible is a major reason why I will keep going back and back to that particular product as opposed to necessarily watching a highlights clip on, on YouTube, for instance. So I think as you get a much greater depth and, and I guess divvying up of the content options that are available, then being able to surface what, what, what is most relevant to, to an audience is, uh, is a really important thing. I guess going back to my previous role back at the International Olympic Committee, I think it's a really interesting run for them to be able to take when, when it comes to investing in the digital properties that they're, they're taking a much greater hand in now because the way that each individual will want to consume their Olympic experience is probably something that is almost, almost inextricably linked to their national team. And the ability for, for instance, for me to go to the Tokyo 2020 website and to be able to surface the stories, the video clips, the content that are exceptionally relevant to me as either an Australian Olympic fan or an Olympic fan who has a huge interest in basketball, swimming, hockey, tennis, that, that is an incredibly powerful thing to be able to do in an event or series of events that produce such a massive wave of available content. Do you think it's going to be an interesting moment in that data collection, personalization um, uh, process, the next sort of four or five years? Because, we all don't like giving our data to Facebook at the moment. That seems to be a, 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 a becoming a toxic thing. However, as a basketball fan, you're saying I want to give my data uh, so they understand and give me a better, they understand me better and give me a better personalized experience. I'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable giving my, my data to team GB. If they've got an OTT player, or British Olympic team, it just seems I trust them more. I'm a fan of them, etc. Whereas Facebook is something I use that is ex- increasingly seen as exploiting me. Well, perhaps it always has done. I just didn't realise. But but you know, increasingly seen. Of, it's in the news as a as a as a toxic thing. So, do you see next three five years an opportunity for 
uh, organizations, brands, particularly sporting ones that people uh, come to approach rather than get, you know, just, just using their service. They're actually fans of and love in a way you won't love Facebook. You might love team GB or team Australia, whoever it is. There's actually an opportunity to have a more, um, uh, a more sensitive, uh, a more ethical way of using data. Sport can a actually raise the bar across the industry. I think you're absolutely right, Rich, and probably on on two levels there. One is one is, and you use the word yourself, uh, the trust factor of who who it is that am I comfortable withholding information about me, whether on a you know something that it potentially allows them to directly communicate with me, which is one thing, or alternatively something that essentially evidences my interest, essentially evidenced by my behaviour on various products, and I. Think, and I think it's a reasonable assumption that sporting organisations or franchises or events probably sit at a far higher trust level on that front than your typical social media platform, your typical news platform, uh, which, I, which I think probably don't have the same trust level. So I think there's definitely an opportunity there. I also think that when it comes to, to why it is that I'm going to someone's product, uh, it's... When, when I go to the NBA app or when I go to live basketball TV, I'm doing it because there's something on there that I love. And if there's a way of me being able to find it more easily or that product becoming even more useful for me, that gives a utility value to me in terms of that, that data value exchange. So, um, so I, I am far more comfortable with the concept of those types of organizations who are delivering a product that is linked to one of my passions, understanding more about what it is that I, that I like and that I want to be served at any given time. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it is, it's going to be a very, very fine line to tread though. still in the coming years. I think the concept of personal data for many, many reasons is something that there is unfortunately a, a negative linked to at the moment which i think is is disappointing uh it's unfortunate because there are lots of ways that that data can be used to deliver you an experience which is much much better than, than would otherwise be the case uh but it's going to become a continuing uh i guess battle to get to get people to to trust what it is that you're doing i think there's there's also an interesting point here there's obviously a a big Big push, and, right, and rightly so, for, for the, the collection of contact information. Essentially, everyone wants to have a direct communication relationship with their fans and to be able to communicate their messages, both, both from, a, from a brand perspective, but also to give that person the opportunity to take advantage of offers that might exist or to partake in coming to games. And that's seen as an incredibly important thing. I think on the flip side, we're also seeing the value of having products that people are essentially digital products that people will return to consistently and on an incredibly frequent basis and the engagement opportunities that exist not just in terms of the the ability the coming back to that particular product but to also provide relatively helpful and useful notifications through those products uh, you know just your typical app notifications because in a way while, you, while you're not necessarily having the direct, you know, having someone's email address, for instance, there is still an effective communication route that exists there 
And as long as you treasure that and you use that responsibility, responsibly and you use it in a way in which you're providing a value and a service to, to your fan base, then it's unlikely to be something that they will rail against. The three by three version of the game. Um, I'm right in thinking that's, 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 I think 2019 was, is that the first time it had um, a World Cup, a World Championship, the three by three version of the game? My question is, how are you using that? How are you using that different version? Because it seems a little bit more fun, a little bit more open, different type of game, and it can be used strategically to grow the audience. Yeah, it's, 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 so it's, it sits outside of, I guess, my, my responsibility area, but it's obviously something that I take a, take a close interest in on, on multiple fronts, just as a, as a legitimate basketball fan and, and also because of what its strategic value is to Fever. And certainly the, the biggest news in the world of three-on-three is that it's been included into the, the program for the Tokyo Olympic Games. And so there is a magnificent outdoor experience which is going to be unleashed in, in hopefully 2021 for, uh, for, for the, that event. And the way that the, the, uh, essentially the, the, the participation uh, requirements or qualification requirements are from that, I think we're going to see a lot of exciting new nations which haven't necessarily been uh, your major major threats at, at championships over the last 20, 30, 40 years um, in, in five-on-five basketball. So I think it, it probably does, you know, that someone from FIBA and the FIBA 3 on 3 team will be able to, to talk through this in far greater detail than I can. But as, as a basketball fan, I look at it as, as doing two things. One, it provides an incredibly accessible way to take basketball to urban populations so most of the three-on-three events are essentially held in urban locations whether it's shopping centers town squares and the like and if you've never been to one it is a phenomenal event to attend the games are rapid fire uh there are dunk competitions in between uh artistic performances in between and it becomes a real celebration of, of urban culture and entertainment and just to have something that is a physical manifestation of your game and, and breaking it down to those elements which are probably of great interest to you know, a, a particular demographic that we are looking to invest in and looking to recruit as basketball fans for the for the, the long term. It is an amazing product uh, for doing that. I think the second part is that much like you, and probably the example I, I, I would use is that uh, you know, you, you've had a range of new winter sports, for instance, that, that particularly warm weather countries, and use, use Australia as an easy example there, have, have been able to have success in and establish programs in and, and generate medals in at the Winter Olympics, simply because they're, they're a new sport. And the level of and depth of expertise um, is, is essentially something that is dynamic and being continually developed. It's not absolutely necessary to have the same level of infrastructure and the same level of coaching and, and dedicated programs in order to flourish in a new event as opposed to something that has been around for many, many years, as is the case with, with traditional five-on-five basketball. So I think you're seeing countries, and you know, Mongolia is a great example of certainly not a country that would probably come to most people's lips uh, when it comes to basketball powerhouses around the world but they have an exceptionally talented crop of three-on-three players and have essentially dedicated a lot of time to producing units in that, in that particular form of the game that are genuinely challenging at the, at the upper levels of, of, that, of that sport uh, in terms of three-on-three. And so being able to actually use that as a way to, 
to bring a sport to new nations um, who don't necessarily have all of the historical benefits uh, from, from, from being a part of five-on-five basketball for so long, I think is a really interesting element of the whole three-on-three approach. Esports, does that fall under FIBA media and, and where are you on, on that journey? Because everyone's having a look at it, right? <laughs> Uh, everyone, it does seem everyone's having a look at it. So it doesn't, doesn't come within the FIBA media pot. Uh, FIBA established the first FIBA Esports Open earlier this year um, as, I guess, somewhat of, somewhat of a trial run. It was, hadn't been something that had been done uh, by the, the Global Federation before, uh, but was a, a project that essentially came to fruition during the time of, uh, of the COVID lockdown and was remarkably successful in terms of the, you know, the amount of eyeballs that were were on each of the games. It was something that was done in, in collaboration with the national federations in terms of the identification of players who would participate in the tournament, the way that the actual event was run. So it was essentially relying on existing FIBA structures, but running an alternative tournament at the same time. So I have, have no doubt that with the, with the popularity of, of basketball games and particularly the NBA 2K game, that provides an immensely good platform for people to, to play a sport, whether they're traditional players themselves or an alternative route to become interested in it. You know, I think everyone still looks back at, at the days of FIFA being used as somewhat of a battering ram uh, to, to actually bring a lot of, of younger consumers in North America to, to have an interest and for and develop identification with uh, football as a, as a sport. So um, I think it's certainly something that, that FIFA will continue to, to look at. I guess from, from my personal perspective, probably the area that, that at a personal level interests me more is some of the products that we're seeing, which are essentially still focused on the physical activity of sport and at, 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 its, at, at its fundamental level, um, that, that is what we're, we're encouraging, both the love of basketball and a desire to play it, um, but uh, enabling that or facilitating it in in ways to take advantage of incredible developments in technology. And so, you know, there is, there is you know, one particular product uh, on, the bus, on the market at the moment, which essentially enables you to, to, to train via, via an app interface on, on a mobile phone and both learn and perfect fundamental skills of basketball, like dribbling and shooting and movement and doing so in a way that's got heavy gamification elements and contest elements to it. And for me, that's, that's actually the real interesting stream of activity that, that I'll be keeping a very close eye on in, in the coming years because it's still absolutely linked to people, people engaging in physical activity and engaging in healthy behaviours, but utilising some incredible technological developments and particularly with a device that a, an overwhelming proportion of, of the world uh, you know, has in their pocket um, to essentially... You know, help drive interest and help drive excellence in those games and yeah there's there's we've seen products that have essentially helped cross over events uh on on cycling and rowing and iron man that effectively once again you know taking someone on a a rowing machine or or a stationary bicycle and essentially augmenting a a visual of that that looks like it's a, a particular contest between real human beings. So I think there's, there's some really, really cool stuff happening in that area. And I think it'd be great to watch in the coming years. Andrew Ryan, thank you very much.
you can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com.